You are listening to Birdsong by Verna A. Ringlander as part of the Curious Works of Verna A. Ringlander podcast series. We will begin right after this. No one liked the drills. They lasted for a long time. They interfered with our day. They made us mad. They were designed to scare us. Well, they were designed to protect us. All they did was annoy us every time. It had been years since we'd seen a storm at camp, as I understood it. Long before I got there, perhaps even before I was born, the drills were pointless, it seemed, and yet storms were still happening all over the world. The guides and counselors would tell us about them when they happened, when they would read us the news. Lots of us remembered our lives before camp. I didn't. I was too little to remember anything before my arrival there. I sort of remembered my parents, but I didn't think about them because it made me too sad. My earliest clear memory is Counselor Muffy praising me when I learned how to read, and my guide at the time, Stacia was her name, beamed with pride as she had been the one who taught me. She stayed for years as a counselor to the little ones. I wanted to be just like her. We were always reading at camp, mostly aloud to the other campers in morning, fiction, and afternoon, nonfiction readings, and to each other in pairs. And I loved reading, so I was happy growing up at camp. I had it easy. I had a nice childhood there. The ones who remembered life before camp were different from those of us who didn't. They were generally unhappier, generally had a harder time obeying any authority figures. And for a place packed with authority figures, they had a harder time in general if they didn't obey and keep balance. Some of the newcomers would spiral out if they didn't quickly make friends or bury themselves in their books and lessons. I was one of the ones who noticed the newcomers and made it my special charge to befriend them and, if needed, teach them how to read or read aloud together or at least find them a book they'd enjoy or sit with them at meals. There were so many others there. Sadly, some of them people I called friends who weren't nice to newcomers. It became a game to see how quickly they could get a newcomer to spiral out. It was ugly business, and if I caught my friends participating in it, I would scream at them and yell and give them an earful, and for Jammy, I would do most anything short of getting into a fight. 
Getting a newcomer to lose their sanity was his favorite pastime. I absolutely hated Jamie, and Jamie hated me. Because I had been so nice to so many newcomers, I had a lot of friends. And they kept Jamie from bothering newcomers sometimes in the ways they'd seen me try to intervene. I was well-liked by the campers and by all the authorities, and I wanted to be a guide for so bad, for so long, and help the little ones learn to read and ease transitions for newcomers with the counselors for all the youngest campers, like Stacia had done. Mistress Vosch, our counselor Fleave, would bring a newcomer into our bunkhouse usually early in the morning before we lined up and assembled for breakfast. Sometimes they'd arrive so late at night that we'd wake up and they'd be there in their new bunk, quite often weeping there at the first. I stayed vigilant for them. I learned to sleep light in case of an arrival that I'd get to them before someone like Jamie could. Some of the more insidious challengers to newcomers were the ones who'd pretend to be their friend. They'd usually work quicker than the ones who were outright mean. Meanness just made older newcomers our age bow up and stand up for themselves or gain pity from nice people who would protect them from further meanness. But it was the nice ones that always won big piles of food and magazines and whatever else they treasured in the bedding. Sometimes even secret stuff like jewelry or the books we were not allowed to have at all. It was the nice ones that usually got the new ones to break. As I watched them, I learned how they did it. All they usually had to do was ask a lot of questions about what the poor newcomer had just left behind. I knew not to do that, because even if I had good intentions, it would only cause them grief to talk about their story. And if they started to talk about their parents or ask if their siblings were there or anything, I would try to get them to focus on learning their schedule introduce them to as many good, kind people as I could, give them the rundown on which counselors were nice and which ones were boring and which guides could be bribed to get you contraband on their errands, that sort of thing. Just ply them with information, I would, but not too much, or that would backfire, and they'd get overwhelmed, and Toshea or Jammy would see the tears and swoop in and undo all my hard work. I taught myself to treat Toshea's hissing whispers as my alarm clock. The moment I heard it, I'd snap awake, and my eyes would scan the room, and I'd sit up as swiftly and as quietly as I could, and my head would swivel until I noticed the new kid, what bunk they were being ushered to by Vosh or Fleave, and my feet would hit the cold floor with as much stealth as I was capable as I'd scurry over to the bunk and whisper a speech I'd always give, one I memorized and gave so many times. Hi, welcome to our camp. If you're tired and need sleep, I understand. 
I'll leave you alone. But please come find me as soon as you wake up and I'll show you around. My bunk is right over there. See? Bunk 11. We'll go to breakfast together, okay? Bunk 11. Remember, see you then. Toshea got wise, eventually, and started beating me to them most of the time. Oh, dear, Toshea would mule. What's wrong? What happened? Are you okay? And sometimes just those words alone would get the tantrum going or the waterworks flowing. I didn't hate Toshea like I hated Jammy. Toshea was different in one very important way, that once she got a newcomer to spiral out and collected her winnings, she became kinder in a way that it almost seemed like it was all in good fun. She even befriended the newcomers she broke, with very few exceptions. Jammy kept the psycho manipulation going as if it were some sort of eternal game for him, getting the newcomers to break over and over as if they were his winning horse, getting them to do his deeds, tell his lies, and assist him with breaking more newcomers in ways that would always give him the glory, of course. And if Toshea or Barabbas or some other rival broke them? He'd get them to spiral out even worse as soon as he could just to prove a point. And if they didn't break at all, even under his best efforts, they became outright enemies. Those were usually the ones I got to first. It never made any sense to me, but that's what I observed. What made even less sense to me was how hard Jammy spiraled out way back when he first arrived. And no one even had to try. He was around ten, one year older than me, and he acted like one of the little ones, even sucked his thumb and called for his mammy. I tried to console him, and he screamed at me to leave him alone. My kindness was like gasoline on his anger and grief. That was the only time I won the game. And of course I didn't want to. Not at all. I gave my winnings away. I even tried to give some to Jammy to cheer him up. He just glared at me. I tried. I really did. To soften him some and help him out. And it only ever made his feelings worse. That seemed to be the reason he never liked me. The drills were the biggest push into winning one of these games. All that chaos and every desperate attempt by every guide and every counselor to maintain order and keep track of all ages of frantic, wiggling, giggling, screaming, fighting, running, yelling, chatting, and confused children was enough to make anyone mad. But if it was their first time, it almost always sent a newcomer into madness. I imagine it likely triggered something from their story before they came, which is why I never asked too many questions about that, because it was always best to keep all of that as far from our minds as we could. We careened down the stairs, and the counselors would peer through the doors one last time before slamming them shut, 
sealing us into the main hall. And the fan engines would start up and make this glorious machine noise that always left me in awe. Because for a moment, that was all you could hear. And I can imagine we were in a rocket ship, taking off the way it would crescendo. And then we'd feel the breeze from the vents hit our faces. Once the emergency lights ticked on and the fan noise lowered to a dull whirring, I always gazed about for searching faces looking to find me. The faces of my friends and the newcomers under my wing and almost always a handful of little ones who knew me as a safe face. I'd wear a huge smile and start a song off and get the little ones drumming on their tummies. I tried to make it fun. It wasn't fun, but I always tried. In spite of the vents and the fans, it always got hot, and it was too dark to read, which didn't stop a lot of us from trying when we got tired of singing and chanting. If it lasted too long, it got too quiet, and I was always vigilant about not letting that ever happen. I always found someone to start a song with me, even if it was a lullaby to get the little ones to take a nap. But no matter how hard some of us tried to make it a little less unpleasant, a little bit less uncomfortable of an experience, it was an unpleasant, uncomfortable experience for all of us. It always, always got lots of kids crying, even some who weren't newcomers. Jammy and Tashea and Barabbas and all of those types would end every drill day with heaps of goodies. I hated it. Inevitably, someone would do something to get themselves in trouble. Most of that came down to disrespect and disobedience. If a kid got sluggish or made a lot of guff getting into the hall or down the stairs, the counselors took notice and made an example out of them. I heard the reprimands a thousand times. What if it were a real storm? They'd always say. What if you got stuck out there? You wouldn't survive. You'd get killed along with anyone left out there looking for you. But it was never a real storm. Some of the kids, including Barabbas, as a tactic to get a new kid to spiral out, would even mutter about how the storms weren't even real and try to gaslight them. Sometimes I even wondered if that were true. And I wondered if that were true, that if the storms weren't real, what were we all doing here? Couldn't we leave? Isn't the whole point of having us here at camp to protect us from the storms? That's when I'd give myself a piece of my own advice to little ones and newcomers alike and remind myself that this particular line of thought is what causes the big problems for us. And I'd go back to my book. Or if I didn't have a book, I'd hum myself a tune. One night, the moonlight through the porthole shone as bright as the morning sun diffused by the privacy glazing so it looked like it was a soft, white light someone had left on to scare away the darkness of nighttime. It made it hard to sleep. Suddenly, 
Mistress Vosch glided down the row of bunks in her all-white suit, reflecting the moonlight so brightly that I had to squint my eyes. She had a boy my age with her, a little older, which was extremely rare and usually didn't go well. After 15 or 16 or so, they never seemed to adjust and could see the end coming up so soon as early as 18 that they mostly spent those terrible few years just brooding and seething and having tantrums and counting their days. I tried to see how he was faring there as Vosch walked him in, but I couldn't see his face. Just that moonlight that shone so unnaturally that Vosch didn't even have to bring a lantern with her. As soon as Vosch was out of sight and she shut and locked the door in that quiet, graceful way she always thought would keep from waking us, I scurried right over to bunk 24 where the new boy had just settled in for the rest of the night. I could see Toshea over in her bunk clear as day, giggling and covering her mouth, laughing that I'd beat her to it for the first time in such a long time. I knelt down to meet the boy at his bottom bunk at eye level and set my hand on his shoulder with a light tap. He slowly turned to look at me, right into my eyes, and I sort of just stopped breathing. My hand felt like it was glued to his shoulder, angular and strong, and as his body flipped over slowly to face me completely, I yanked it away awkwardly and launched into my speech. Hi, welcome to our camp. If you're tired and need sleep, I understand. I'll leave you alone. Mm. Yes, please let me sleep. He opened and closed his eyes and yawned. Okay, but, but please come find me as soon as you wake up and I'll show you around. My bunk is right over there. See, bunk 11. We'll go to breakfast together. Breakfast. Sounds great. Can I go back to sleep now? He grinned as he whispered back, yawning again. Oh, sure. Just remember, I'm Bunk 11 and... Bunk 11! Got it! He said much louder than a whisper, and I gasped and shushed him a little. He raised his eyebrow at me, a sharp look from his sparkling eyes, and rolled back over embracing his still fully packed duffel bag like a pillow. This one, I thought to myself, was going to be a toughie.